between being so overwhelmed with the debt and the creditor calls and being depressed and having almost 24 beers in me, I decided it was a good time to end my life. Mental health and addiction are largely misunderstood. We often struggle in silence, but there is hope for a better life. I'm Trevor Steinhauser, and this is Stigmatized. Today I have the honor of having my good friend Jim McCord here with me today. Thanks for being here, brother. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. I started a support group in October 2017, and for the first six months, five months maybe, I sat there by myself, twiddling my thumbs, waiting for people to come and trying to reach out on Facebook. Nobody would come, and I was just discouraged. Almost gave it up. And then one of your buddies brought you in in February of 18, and you came back the next week. And for probably four or five months after that, it was just you and me just chatting. We'd stay there for an hour and a half, but you, you never gave up on me. And uh, now we, we had five last night. It was a Thursday night meeting. We had five last night, which is low. We, yes. we average about eight. So I just I really appreciate you hanging in there with me. And uh, it's become a really fun thing that I think we all look forward to every week. So anyway, and you just got back from Mexico. Yeah, we have a daughter that lives in Mexico. Just had a baby. Yep, our fifth grandchild. Yeah, that's awesome. Congratulations. Well, you have one of the best stories that I've ever heard as far as you know recovery and, and everything that you've been through. So I want you to take us through that. All right. Well, uh, you know, you, you talked about coming to your group, your Thursday night group, and it was just the two of us. And I, I uh, look so forward to get, hooking up with you every Thursday night, Trevor. Um, I think you know that. I look forward to it all week. And it, <clears throat> I'm glad that we have quite a few more people coming now. But in, in a way, I miss it. it was just the two of us. Right. But, um, you know, you and I both grew up in the same city. And in our city, it's the, the stigma of addiction, whether it's alcohol or drug or depression or mental illness, is so powerful. It's just something that's, in our city, I think more so than most cities in, in, in the country and in the world. It's just something that's kept quiet, and it certainly was in our, in our family. And, you know, I, I grew up in a middle-class family, and it was a wonderful childhood. I had great parents. Neither one of my parents were alcoholics, definitely not alcoholics. They drank, and they drank socially. But I was raised Catholic, and that every family function— Every family function, even every funeral, there was always alcohol. And I'm happy. I happen to be one who, for whatever reason, has that addiction. And from the from the first time I started drinking alcohol, I was 14 years old. And literally from that very first time, I drank more than the kids I was with. And I really didn't know why, but I did. And you know, through throughout my high school years and in college years, it pretty much was always the same. Now, I was convinced that I didn't have an alcohol problem because I thought, based on what, you know, based on what I knew about alcoholism, that you had to be drinking every day. You had to black out every day. And I thought, since I don't black out every day, and I didn't even drink every day, even during my heavy times, I didn't drink every day. But... I drank, I blacked out a lot. I had hundreds of blackouts over my drinking, you know, my 30 years of drinking. And um, I never really understood why. Every time I'd wake up after a blackout, I'd think, God, I can't believe I don't remember what happened last night. Or, you know, get up from your your, your room and walk out to the front of the house and see if your car's there because you don't even know. I didn't even know if my car was at home. And... After every single one of those, I committed to myself that that was just never going to happen again. I, I never even gave it a, a thought that I might have an alcohol problem. I just knew I drank too much the night before. I wasn't an alcoholic because I didn't drink every day. Right. And I, and I certainly didn't black out every time I drank. I would say between 20 and 25, 30% of the time I'd black out. 
But I had hundreds of blackouts over 30 years of drinking, hundreds. And after every one, I promised myself that's the last time that's never going to happen again. And it would happen again and again and again. And, you know, there's all kind of incidents that happened over the years. But I, I would say the single incident that made me realize that I was an alcoholic happened in, uh, it was November 17th, 18th, and 19th of 2003. And I had been, I've been a realtor all my life. I'm not a real estate agent anymore. I coach realtors now, but I sold real estate for 25 years. And for the years 2000 and 2001, I put together a big consolidation of a bunch of properties for a commercial developer to build a shopping center in a big residential community. And I had worked on that for two years. And I had, uh, because I was working solely on that, I made very little money through my my other res selling residential homes. So I was borrowing money for the first time in my life, borrowing money to live. But I had this big half million dollar plus check coming, you know, at the end. And so I wasn't worried about borrowing money. And as it turned out, um, the development, the developer that I was working with in the city I was working with, things just didn't progress as they should have. And the city had to switch developers. And uh, as it turned out, they decided I was not going to get paid, which is, you know, kind of a long story. I had done all this work to put uh, 92 properties together for this big development, and I was supposed to make over half a million dollars, and it didn't happen. So I had all this debt, and that had been going on for about, at this point, about three years. A lot of debt. I'm getting calls from creditors every day. And... It was just overwhelming, you know. I mean, when you get a call from a creditor and you've never had that the rest of your life, it, it's kind of depressing. And I think it was especially depressing for me because my father was in credit all his life. He worked for a company called Dunn & Bradstreet. And he actually, and he, he always made a, a really big uh, point of this. He goes, Jimmy, you never, you just don't get in debt. You pay your bills. And I always did pay my bills my entire life. Until that three-year period, you know, when it, when I when this all happened, and I think that's that probably added to my my depression because I had been told all my life that you don't get in debt, and here I was in debt, and I have creditors calling me. But you know, so we filed a lawsuit, and the lawsuit was dragging on and dragging on, and I'll never forget it. It was November seventeenth, two thousand and three. A uh, my attorney called me up, and he said, "Jim, I would like for you to come out to the office. I have something I'd like for you to tell me." And it was I had a busy day that day, and I said, "Well, let's just talk about it over the phone." He said, "No, I really need you to come to my office." So I drove about. 20 miles to his office and sat down. And he goes, the reason I asked you to come is, he said, I wanted to tell you in person. He said, a judge decided to drop your lawsuit. We no longer have a suit. And I just kind of freaked out because all along I was told I'm going to, I'm going to be paid this $500,000. I was sure of it. And, um, he said, I don't want you to panic. He said, your lawsuit is definitely legitimate. You did the work. We know that we, we have a really good chance of winning this, but as of right now, I need you to know that we don't have a lawsuit. We're going to file and try and get this changed. And he said, uh, please don't panic. Uh, we're going to work on it. Within a month or two, we should have this refiled. And I left there, and uh, it was just overwhelming. It was just overwhelming. Because, you know, in my mind, I had, been, I had been dealing with this debt for about three years, and I was sure that it was all going to be cleared up with this lawsuit, no matter how long it took, I was told by all the attorneys that I worked with that I was going to get this half million dollars plus interest. And that's the first day that there's a possibility that I may not get paid. And, you know, what, what, a, what a, I'll say a normal person would have done is just do what his attorney told him and go back to work and let his attorney deal with the situation. But that's not what I did. I decided, uh, immediately, as soon as I left his office, I decided I needed to get out of cell phone range. And back in 2003, you could do that. Now we pretty much have cell phone range everywhere, almost everywhere in the country. But I knew if I drove about 15 miles south, I'd be out of cell phone range. And I wanted to get out of cell phone range for two reasons. Number one, I was getting a lot of calls from creditors, and I didn't want to take any more calls that day. And I didn't want to tell 
my kids or my family or my friends that I didn't have a lawsuit because it was to me it was embarrassing, you know, that I may never get paid. So I, I needed to get out of cell phone range. So I drove out of cell phone range and I thought, and uh, Trevor, you and I talk about this sometimes, uh, you know, I I have a uh, addiction to alcohol problem that I'm, I'm overcoming and been in recovery for 15 years, but I also go through depressions. And um, when I when I get depressed, what I do is I do one of two things. I'll either drive around and I can literally drive around all day. Or I'll go sit somewhere and I'll sit there for two hours, three hours, six hours. So that, that was actually my plan. My plan was to get out of cell phone range, find a park, and just sit there and, and kind of veg out. Well, I got about 15 miles south. I'm out of cell phone range. And it was a beautiful day. It was still morning. It was like 10 o'clock in the morning. And I love the Red River Gorge. That's about two hours from where we live. And I thought, well, since I'm going to blow this entire day off now, I might as well go down to the gorge and just hike around instead of just sitting here, you know, going through my depression. I'll hike through this, the gorge. And so I started heading down there. And um, for whatever reason, uh, it came to my mind that it would be a good idea to stop and get some beer. So I stopped uh, just north of Lexington and I got a 12-pack of beer. And the plan was to not drink it until I got down to the gorge. But I started drinking as soon as I got back in the car. And, Imagine yeah. that. Yeah, and by the time I got to the gorge, e- even before I got to the Red River, Red River Gorge, I finished 12 beers driving in about 45 minutes. And the Red River Gorge is in a dry county in Kentucky. Kentucky has dry counties still where you can't buy alcohol. And I knew that because I'd been there a lot. So I knew the last place to buy alcohol was a small town called Winchester. So I had finished my 12 beers and I saw the Winchester exit coming up and I thought, "Ah, I better get some more beer. So I stopped in Winchester and bought another 12 pack and uh, continued on down to the gorge. And, you know, one thing led to another and between my, between being so overwhelmed with the debt and the creditor calls and being depressed and having almost 24 beers in me, I decided that it was a good time to end my life. And, and I, I've been through depressions throughout my life and I, statistics say, at least what I hear, they say 20 to 30% of people go through depression at some point in their life. And I think that's complete bullshit. I think 100% of people, I think it's human nature to get depressed. Now, not everybody gets clinically depressed. There's all types of different depression. But I certainly had been depressed, you know, quite a few times in my life. And I think that does run in, in our family, like many families. But I never, I, I can't say I never thought about suicide, but I never took it seriously. I never thought, yeah, that's that's the avenue for me. But that particular day, November 17th, 2003, after 20 or 24 beers, that seemed like the perfect answer. It actually was, to me, that seemed like the answer. So I decided rather than to finish on, drive down to the gorge and hike around, I decided I would go to a motel. And I stopped in one of those exits, a small town down in southeastern Kentucky and rented a flea bag motel and um, sat on that bed. And this was not a blackout. I actually remember it, you know. I, I, I guess I, I was so used to drinking that I could drink 24 beers without blacking out. So I remembered this, but I remembered writing the suicide note and really not being sad about it. I thought, yeah, this is the way to go for me. And I wrote that note, and I, I happened to have a hundred over 100 sleeping pills in my car. And I've always abused alcohol, but I never abused pills. I, I truly only took the sleeping pills to sleep at night. I take one at night. Now, was that irony that you had them in your car? I mean, how, why were they in your car? I had them in my car because they were very powerful sleeping pills. And I was told by my doctor that, uh, you know, don't let your kids get a hold of these because they mm. can be addicting and they're very powerful. So I, my kids didn't know I had the sleeping pills and I didn't keep them in the house. I kept them in my, I actually had a van. I had a safari van. It was kind of like my office, my roving office. And I kept those pills hidden in the van so my kids would never get a hold of them. 
But I knew that, uh, you know, that was my avenue of suicide. I knew that if I took over 100 of those incredibly powerful sleeping pills, that that would do it. And so I was sitting on that uh, flea bag motel bed, and I wrote this. It's, it was about a full-page suicide note. And, um, and I thought that was it. And I remember being very happy with that. And <clears throat> the next morning, I woke up. I'm, I'm, I woke up on the bed. For a few seconds, I didn't really realize where I was. And um, I see a note laying on the bed. And it kind of came back to me, oh, my God, I think I wrote a suicide note. And so I looked at that note, and then it all came back to me. You know, I remembered everything. And I was hungover. I was still drunk. And I thought, oh, my God, I can't believe, I just can't believe that. So, you know, uh, I guess I came somewhat to my senses at that point. That was the um, 17th. That was the morning of the 18th. And I got in the car, put put the suicide note in the car and I drove to a payphone. We didn't have cell phones that worked back then. So I had to drive to a payphone where I was. And I called the lady I was dating at the time and I told her the whole situation. I told her, you know, where I was. And uh, I didn't tell her that I wrote a suicide note. I said I was depressed, you know, I'm down here at the gorge. I'm on my way home. Don't worry about me. Let my kids know I'm fine. And so I headed home and that was my intention. But keep in mind, I was very depressed. I was hungover, and I was still drunk. And I was—I drove um, along 64 and then went through Lexington, and I'm going north on 75. And I got a creditor call from one of those creditors because I'm back in cell phone range now around Lexington. And creditors, I guess, are like anybody else. There's you know, good people and bad people. And this particular one was truly an asshole and, you know, was— was really being rough on me, so I hung up on him. And uh, as soon as I hung up, like within a second or two, I got another call from not the same guy, but a different creditor. And uh, she was being rough on me too. And being drunk, I was right at that point where 64 and 75 split. And if you're going to go north on 75, which was my plan, you know, you go straight. And if you wanted to go 64 west, you got to take the exit to the left. And I was right at that point, and I literally just made a split-second decision that I couldn't go home. You know, suicide's a better option. And I, and I swerved the car, almost wrecked, and went west on 64, just like that. And the very next exit I saw there was a grocery store, and it was late enough in the morning that I thought I could probably buy some beer. So I stopped in that grocery store, and I bought 24 more beers and uh, started drinking and driving and uh, drove over into Indiana that day and got good and drunk. And uh, the whole day I had this suicide note in my hand and that seemed like the right answer again. You know, it, it truly did. And I hadn't told that lady that I was dating on the phone that I even had that. So nobody knew that was in my mind. And uh, that entire day, I really was comfortable with that. And I knew that that was going to be my last day on earth. And I was happy with that. And um, ended up going to a small town in Indiana called Corydon, Indiana. And uh, I asked someone if there was a state park around. And they said, yeah, about 10 miles out of town, there's a state park. So I drove there and rented a campsite. And I was going to end my life at this campsite. Well, I thought, and I love camping. I've camped ever since I was a kid. And I thought, well, you know, I didn't, when I left, when I left the house two days before, I didn't realize I was going to be camping. I thought I was just leaving for a drive to the gorge and back. So I didn't have a tent, didn't have a sleeping bag. And I thought, well, I'll go to Walmart and get a tent and a sleeping bag and end my life comfortably in a tent, <laughs> which is crazy. But that seemed, that seemed like a good answer to me. So that's what I did. I, I drove to Walmart. I remember driving to Walmart and, uh, Went in there, bought a tent and a sleeping bag, and uh, went to the checkout. And I must have looked like hell, you know, two days of drinking. And the lady said, uh, she said, sir, you, you look like you need somebody to talk to. She said, would you like to step outside and just talk for five or ten minutes? I said, no, I'm fine. And I'm sure I reeked alcohol and I looked bad and, I, you know, I was depressed, so I must have looked depressed. And continued to check out with her and um, gave her my card or my money, whatever I gave her. And she uh, 
said, I, I have a break coming up. She goes, well, I'm going to walk out with you. I'm going to take my break and we need to talk. And I said, no, ma'am, I'm, I'm fine. And, you know, I really wanted to talk to her. I knew I needed to, but it was my ego at the time, you know, being, being raised the way that we are. And, and I'm not blaming my parents for this. I mean, you know, you're, you're taught to keep things in. And I think that's changing in today's world. But, uh, you know, I, I didn't want to tell anybody. And so the last thing I wanted to do was for her to take her 10 minute break and for me to tell her my whole story, you know, and I said, no, ma'am, I'm fine. And she put the sleeping bag in a tent in this big plastic bag. And, I'm, you know, I had paid and I'm walking out and she came to me a third time and she put her hand on my shoulder and she said, I'm not asking this time. She goes, I'm walking out with you. And I got kind of mean with her. And I said, no, you're not. I said, I'm fine. I don't need you. I don't want you. But I did want her, you know, mm -hmm. but that's the way I was at the time. And so she walked away and I went out and, you know, I went back, drove to the campsite and, um, on the way to the campsite, I, I knew that I wanted a bunch of people. I knew exactly who I wanted to get my suicide letter. And it, it wasn't mean. Uh, you know, I don't have a copy of it, but uh, it was just why I was doing what I was doing. And, you know, I wanted everybody to know that I was happy with it. And I wanted everybody that I cared about to have an explanation. So on the way back to the uh, campground, I stopped in a grocery store in Corydon, Indiana. And back in those days, grocery stores had copy machines. And I uh, went to the copy machine and I made eight copies and I bought a box of envelopes, number 10 white envelopes in grocery stores back then. And now I think some of them still sell stamps. So I bought nine stamps, had eight copies in the original and a box of envelopes. And I addressed those envelopes to the nine people I wanted to receive my suicide note. And I had no qualms doing that. And I really felt it was the right thing to do. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing exactly what I should do. And I actually went to a mailbox and I mailed those. And, uh, and this is kind of where, you know, blackouts are funny things. Anybody who's listening who's had blackouts knows sometimes you have a blackout and you don't remember anything. And other times you have a blackout and things kind of fade in and fade out and you remember some stuff. But I don't remember the rest of the day. I very clearly remember dropping those nine letters in a mailbox on Route 62 outside of Corydon. And then I woke up the next day in a room and I had no idea where I was. You know, initially when I woke up, it was, uh, it was a total blackout. I didn't remember anything initially about the previous day or the day before. And I was in a room, and I had been arrested before. I had been arrested for DUI, and uh, back then when I was arrested for DUI, I was in a drunk tank with 10 or 12 other guys who were all arrested for either public intoxication. And it looked like a jail, and they were all drunks just like I was. And, and this was nothing like that. This was just like it was a very clean room. There was a bed. There was a toilet. And it looked more like a hospital room, but there was no equipment there. And I just had no idea how I got there, where I was. And I thought, man. So I, the only thing I knew to do was bang on the door. So I pounded on the door. And a guy comes and he, and he goes, what do you want? And I said, well, I'd, I'd like to know where I'm at. And he said, uh, you're in jail, buddy. And I said, I said, this doesn't look like a jail. He said, yeah, trust me, you're in jail. And I said, well, what jail is it? He said, it's Bullock County. And I said, Bullock County, where's that? He said, Bullock County, Kentucky. And I said, well, where's Bullock County, Kentucky? And he said it was like 30 miles south of Louisville. And at that point, I realized, obviously, that I was arrested. So I said, can I ask you, why am I in here? He said, uh, I guess you don't remember anything. I said, no. I said, I don't remember anything. He said, uh, you're lucky. He said, you got public intoxication. And I said, that's it. No accident, no fights, just public intoxication. He said, that's it. He said, you got, I think it's $150 fine. And I can let you out of here at five o'clock in the morning. And so I asked him, I said, uh, that's great. I said, what time is it now? And he said it was one o'clock in the morning. And I asked him when I was arrested. And he said that I was brought in at 7 p.m. the night before. So I, I guess I had been laying in that jail cell for six or seven hours, just passed out. And uh, it was one o'clock in the morning now, and I had four hours. And over those next four hours, things started fading back in. And that's when I remembered that I had written a suicide note. And I remembered not only that I wrote it 
two days before, but I remembered the whole sequence of events of the last couple of days. And it all came back to me really clear. And I remembered, uh, as I said earlier, that I remember being very comfortable with that decision that that was the right way to go. You know, and I and laying there in that jail cell, I thought, oh, my God, you know, I and I do. Amy and I have four fantastic kids and I have a ton of great friends. And I almost ended my life, which would have really destroyed my kids' lives and hurt a bunch of friends. And I almost did that over debt. And, you know, I'm laying in that jail cell and I thought, oh, my God, you know, Jim, if you didn't get arrested, you 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 wouldn't be here. And I'm so fortunate. I, I wish I could say I made the decision not to kill myself, but I didn't. And that cop hadn't arrested me. I know I wouldn't be here. And And I just thought, you know, I've been through depressions before. I'm sure I'll be through depressions again. But how can I make sure that this never happens to me again? And, and I realized, you know, I drink way too much. And yeah, I, I go through depressions and I've gone through depressions before. And since I quit drinking, I still go through depressions. But when I combine alcohol with my depression, things get really bad. And I, and I, for whatever reason, I was wise enough laying in that jail cell to make the decision right then and there that I can never drink alcohol again. And that's what I did. You know, that's truly what I did. And, um, I got out of that jail cell at five in the morning and I'll never forget. It was November 19th and it was cold and it was rainy. And he handed me my wallet and, uh, Bola County jail cells out in the country. At least it was back then. And I walked out of prison and, uh, there's no pay phones there. I didn't think to ask him if I could make a phone call. I just wanted to get out of there. And I walked out and it was raining and it was like in the fifties, maybe upper forties. It was chilly. And uh, I looked in my wallet that he gave me, and there was no money in there. And uh, so I started walking. I thought, well, I'm going to have to walk, I guess, to a payphone and borrow some money. And started walking one direction. I went a half a mile or a mile in the rain and saw no lights. So I turned around and walked back to the jail and picked another road. It was uh, The jail is at a crossroads. Four roads come together. And I walked another direction for about a half mile, and I did see some lights off in the distance. And... and um, I went to those lights and there was a couple gas stations and had to borrow money for a call through a payphone. And I called somebody up, a lady who I had been dating at the time, and she came down and picked me up and, you know, went home and uh, t told my kids and explained exactly pretty, exactly what happened and let them know that I was, you know, I had been depressed and um, I'm an alcoholic and I'm never going to drink again. And I didn't have any idea exactly what that meant. I knew it wasn't going to be easy, but I knew that I could never drink alcohol again. And we have a, uh, we have a neighbor across the street from us who had told me he was a recovering alcoholic. So I, uh, first thing I did was went to my ex-wife and I, and I admitted to her that I was an alcoholic and you'd have thought uh, she won the lottery. She was so freaking happy because she had been telling me for years that I had an alcohol problem. And I'm sure that was part of why we went through our divorce. But I told her first and then I told the kids and then I went right over to uh, our neighbor and asked him if he would take me to an AA meeting. And I went to that AA meeting and uh, you and I have talked about this, Trevor, but I'll never forget. I walked in that meeting with him and what I saw, you know, our perception is reality. What I saw was about 30 miserable freaking people sitting around. And I remember sitting down thinking, and I didn't say it, but I remember thinking, well, this is a life you created for yourself, Jim. You have to hang around with miserable people like this. And I laugh at that now because I still go to that same meeting and a lot of those people, not all, but some of them are still there and they're fantastic people and they're, and they were very happy. I'm, you know, they're happy now, but that's not what I saw when I walked into my first AA meeting. I saw a bunch of miserable people cause that's what I expected to see. And, um, yeah, one thing just kind of led to the next. And I, uh, I say this all the time. You've heard me say it in our meetings, uh, other than having four kids, there's nothing, four great kids, there's nothing I'm more proud of than giving up alcohol and sharing that. It's uh, it's just a, it's a wonderful way to live. You know, uh, I'm just so happy to be a recovering alcoholic. And, 
you know, the, the great majority of people with alcohol or drug problems never see a recovery meeting, whether it's AA or it's a meeting like we have on our Thursday nights. It's not AA, it's just recovery. The great majority of people never have the opportunity to go to one of those. And it's just so sad. And I just feel I have no idea why I'm so fortunate. I have no idea why that cop arrested me, but I could just as easily be one of the statistics of during one of those blackouts or back when I used to drink and drive, I could I could have killed a family. I could have ended up in jail for homicide. If that cop didn't arrest me, I, I definitely would have committed suicide. And uh, I just feel so fortunate to be a recovering alcoholic. That's one of the most amazing stories I've ever heard. And I've heard it a bunch of times and it's still never ceases to amaze me. And I don't think you're a big believer in fate, but I believe that you're you're meant to be here, dude. And you, you, you can't, I mean, how many hundreds of people you've helped, including me. But there's one part of that story that you didn't tell. And that's, so how far were you from where that campsite was? Oh, yeah, you're right. I didn't share <laughs> This that. is probably the best yeah. part of it. But Yeah. Well, you know, I was laying in the jail cell uh, down in Bullock County, and I had those four hours to think, and things started fading back in. And one of the things that faded in, which I didn't tell you, share with you before, you've heard it before, that uh, I remembered having an accident on Route 62, and my I had a GMC safari, 97 GMC maroon safari, and it was a nice van. I used it to work, and it was a it was a rainy evening that November 18th, and I was on Route 62, and I remember the van. Uh, doing a 360, hitting the guardrail on the right-hand side. And I remember real clearly, just like it happened just today. And uh, I did another 360, and I hit a tree on the other side of the road. It was a two-lane road, and luckily there was no other cars because it's out in the country. And um, I, I've, I've always thought I was this wonderful driver. <laughs> My kids always make fun of me. My friends make fun of me. I always think I'm the best driver in the world. And it was so funny. I was drunk. And I remember the thought that went through my head. It was, God damn, McCord, you really are a good driver. Nobody else could have pulled out of that, hit a guardrail, hit a tree, and keep going. And, and I remember being really proud of that. Yeah. But anyway, uh, that that's part of what I remember. But to get to your, your distance story, uh, when I woke up in that jail cell and, and he let me out, uh, and, I, and I called the lady I was dating, and she drove down from Northern Kentucky to pick me up. First thing that uh, I needed to do was find my, find my, uh, I, I needed two things. I needed, number one, to go back to that mailbox where I had dropped those nine suicide letters to make, to try to get those recovered so they wouldn't get delivered. And then I needed to find my van. So the priority was getting the letters out of the mailbox first. And when she got down there, you know, I remember being the mailbox being in Corydon, Indiana. So we we were near a McDonald's, and I ran in and I asked where Corydon, Indiana was, and they said it was about an hour northwest of Bullock County. It's amazing. Yeah. So so we uh, measured it, and it was like fifty-seven miles, or so. it was fifty-some miles from from where I was arrested to where I had that accident in my 97 GMC Safari. And you were just clanging and banging. Yeah. And, blacked and, and, out. And, yeah, and, and keep in mind that the uh, the guard in the jail had told me that I was arrested at 7 p.m. So I drove 50-some miles in a totaled van with three flat tires and somehow didn't kill anybody didn't have another accident that I know of. Didn't get pulled over. And didn't get pulled over, yeah, and didn't get arrested. And, uh, yeah, it's just, it's miraculous. But I guess, you know, to go back to, to the uh, suicide letters, which were the most important at the time, uh, we, we drove right to that mailbox. And uh, years ago, 35, 40 year, years ago, I actually worked for the post office. I carried mail, then I worked in marketing and so I knew that on every mailbox, it has a pickup time. So I couldn't wait to get to that mailbox to see what time the letters were picked up. And we got there about quarter after 11 in the morning, and the pickup time was noon. And I know that they're not allowed to pick up before that pickup time. They can pick up the mail from that box after pickup time on the box, but not before. 
So I just breathed a sigh of relief, and I told Kathy, I said, we just got to sit here and wait till the mailman comes, and we did. And luckily, you know, the mailman came, and uh, he opened the box, and I, I, I was just in tears. I was a mess. And I said, look, buddy, I said, you know, I used to work for the post office, and I said, I know how this works. I said, last night I dropped nine suicide letters in there. I said, I can tell you everybody's name, everybody's address. I said, I need to pull those out. And he said, he says, buddy, I can't possibly let you take those out. He said, it's a federal law. You can't remove mail. Only we can. And I was truly sobbing. I was crying because I did not want those to be delivered to my kids and my friends. And and he thought about it for a little bit. And he says, well, I'll tell you what, the post office is about two miles away. He said, I'll take all this mail, including your nine letters. If you follow me, we'll go down to the post office and you can talk to the postmaster. And maybe she'll do something. So we did that. And we went down and I told her the whole story. And I'm sure I'd look like hell, sounded like hell. And I was in tears. And and she had me sign something and she gave me those nine suicide letters. And she was emotional. Yeah. Oh, it was, yeah, it was, I felt so fortunate. But but I guess to go back to the story, you know, we, we, we got those nine letters and I just felt so relieved. And so I told Kathy, I says, well, now we got to find my van. I, I knew I had an accident, but I knew it was drivable because I drove it. And when they, you know, when they let me out of jail, they gave me a piece of paper that said where I was arrested. So I told her, I said, we're going to go to this address down in uh, Bullock County. And that's where my van should be because I was arrested there. And it was like a, it was like a grocery store, like a convenient type store. And so we, we went right there. It was 50 some miles back to Bullock County from Indiana and we pulled in that lot and it was the right address, but there was no van there. So I went in and I asked the uh, the uh, manager of the store, I said, um, you know, I got arrested here last night. Uh, I had a maroon GMC Safari. I know I got arrested here. Have you seen my van? And he said, buddy, I have no idea what you're talking about. And he said, there's no van out there. So I used their phone and I called the Bullock County Police and I said, this is Jim McCord. I got out of your prison just a few hours ago, and I'm looking for my van. Could you guys help me find it? And he said, wait a minute. And I guess he got on the computer, did a little research. And he said, yeah, it was towed to an impound lot. And I said, well, can you give me that address? And he gave me the address. So Kathy and I then drove to that impound lot. And that uh, was a big place down in uh, in that county in we walked in the office because I didn't, you know, there's hundreds of cars there at this impound lot. And we walked in the office and I told him who I was. I told him, you know, Jim McCord, I'm looking for a 97 Safari van that was towed in here last evening. And uh, he said, yeah, we got it. He said, it's going to cost you $150 to get it out. So I didn't have any money. And I asked Kathy, I said, can you write a $150 check? And she gladly did. And I said, where is it? And he goes, why? And I said, well, I'm a I'm going to drive it home. And he goes, you are? And he started laughing at me. And I thought, wow, who's this prick? Why is he laughing at me? I'm, I'm not that drunk anymore. I can drive. And uh, so, you know, he went to this board and he grabbed some keys off of it, my keys. And he goes, well, it's on the other side of that building over there across the street. He said, just go around the back. You'll see it. And he's still laughing. And it was all I could do not to hit him because I thought, why is this guy laughing? This is the worst day of my life, you know. And here he is laughing at me. And he gave me the keys, and I said, come on, Kathleen, let's go, let's go get my car. And we walked around the back of that vehicle, and that van was, I mean, totaled. Just both sides were just dented in. Three, three of the tires were not only flat, but like shredded, shredded from driving on flat tires. And it was not a drive, drivable vehicle, which is why the, the guy was laughing at me. And... uh it had always been my office, so you know, I I started crying instantly when I realized how bad that accident was, and I was how fortunate I was that I didn't hit somebody else. And I told Kathy, I'm going to go in, and I've always used my vehicle as an office, so I had a lot of a lot of stuff in that vehicle. And when I opened the door and, and got in that vehicle, it, I mean, it absolutely was like a bomb went off in there. There was just, I mean, I couldn't make any sense of it. And I've always kept a lot of change. I probably had 40 or 50 or maybe maybe $100 worth of change in that vehicle. And there was change all over. There was at least 
40 or 50 empty beer cans. There was an empty bottle of whiskey, which I normally didn't drink. There was two bottles of wine. I didn't wow. remember any of that. There's papers all over. And I just looked at that and I said, Kathy, let's go. And I just shut the door and I, we went back in the office and I asked the guy, I said, can I just leave the van here? He said, yeah, we'll give you 25 bucks for it. And he handed me 25 bucks and we went home. So yeah, that's the, uh, it was 50 some miles that I drove totally drunk, blackout drunk in a, in a safari van. And uh, somehow or another didn't kill anybody. It's, it's, um, it's amazing. So besides that saving grace of getting arrested, would you say that 12 step meetings in the beginning were your go-to? Yeah. I, you know, I didn't really have any idea. Um, I only have one sister, no brothers. And, uh, not only are my parents not alcoholics or drug addicts, but my sister isn't either. And none of my close friends were, you know, growing up, they didn't drink like I did. They drank when I drank, but I always drank more than every one of my friends. So I didn't have any close friends who were recovering alcoholics or not recovering. They were all just normal social drinkers. I didn't have any family members that I knew of at that time. And uh, so the neighbor across the street was the only guy I knew when we went to that AA meeting. And like I told you, I thought they were all miserable and they're, (laughs) what a great group of people. But I started going to meetings and I just thought, um, you know, this is my life now. And I, I don't remember exactly how long that I thought these were miserable, horrible people. But at some point, I realized that these were the best people in my, in my life. And they they were happy people. And, you know, they were people that actually were not only working on their own problems, but they could admit their problems and they could admit it in public in front of other people. And what And what that does, as you know, since you've been in recovery quite a while now, too, is, you know, whether it's an AA meeting, a recovery meeting, or you're just meeting with another addict who's trying to recover in recovery, you know, it helps everybody because we all live in these shells. And most people don't like to come out of their shell and admit what issues they're going through. And when you get in a room full of people, it can be just one person or it can be 40 or 50 or 100 people. And when you see adults stand up and just share their problems and their depressions and their addictions, it's just so powerful. And, you know, I, I, uh, I can never say I'm definitely not going to drink alcohol again, but I think it's very unlikely. I love not drinking. I absolutely love not drinking. And a lot of people seem to think that I don't need AA meetings. I don't need to go to recovery meetings because I don't want to drink anymore. And I don't, but I love being around recovering addicts. I absolutely love it. Because you uh, have to change. You got to change your environment in in the beginning. You got to change the people that you hang out with. And that just propels you into your life of recovery. Because in the beginning, you got to be, you got to immerse yourself in it. Being around them and being going to that first meeting and just taking that sigh of relief, like, man, I am not the only basket case in the world like I thought I was. That's exactly it. You know, and it's so, it's it's just so powerful to be around people that can share, you know, the, the tough parts of their life. Which is what you did here today, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. And to those listeners out there, I, I giggled throughout the story and it's not laughing at Jim, it's with him because a lot of us going through this have been there. I mean, when I was in my, the throes of my addiction, there's several times where I thought, I mean, I am a complete piece of shit. I'm married. I got three kids. Who does this? I mean, who does this? And there were numerous times where I thought, man, I'm just better off not here. And thank God they were fleeting thoughts, but it's, you know, I'm adding no value. So I just want everybody to know that I, I'm not glorifying his story or anything like that. It's just I've, I've been there and and know what was going on in his mind at the time. But the stigma that you talked about earlier, what can we do? What, what can we do to, to help lift that? Exactly what you're doing, which is get the word out. You know, it's I'm a recovering alcoholic. 
but alcohol is not my problem. And that was a really hard reality for me to accept. I would use alcohol to hide or to not deal with my other issues. And, and I think that's true of most addicts, whether it's alcohol addiction or drug addiction uh, or, or gambling addiction or sex addiction or, or anything. It's, you know, we're all human. We all have issues. And a lot of, a lot of people, most people, realize they have issues, but they, they hide it. And, and I did that for, you know, 46 years of my life. It was, I was 46 years when, when I got arrested, 46 years old when I got arrested. And I think that's, that's just kind of the way that we're brought up is to not really deal with your emotional problems or your mental issues. Cause we all have them, you know, and, and when, when I would get depressed, the last thing I wanted to do was tell somebody I was depressed. Whether I was a kid, a teenager, a young adult, or in my 30s or 40s, I, I didn't want to share that. You know, I, I would deal with my depression on my own. And that's a horrible, lonely way to live. And when you put an addiction, an alcohol addiction on top of that, and, and I, I have to, uh, you know, you... You were saying how you giggled it when I was sharing my story, and and it, that's one of the funnest thing about getting together with a, a group of addicts or alcoholics is, and I remember thinking the same thing that first year or so when I would go to meetings and people would tell these horrendous stories of things they went through, really traumatic things, and a lot of people would laugh, and I think, God, what assholes are laughing at this poor man or this poor woman's story, and uh, you know. But exactly what you said is why we laugh at it. And it's great to be able to laugh at it because to be able to share, we've all done shit like that. And sharing shit like that helps everybody realize that they're not the only ones that have done that crazy, embarrassing, humiliating, you know, stuff. And it's, and it's great to be able to laugh at our, at our issues. Um, the way to get through the stigma is the stigma is just so powerful. I mean, Mental illness uh, is rampant. Depression is rampant. Um, addiction just kind of goes along with it. But whether somebody has an addiction problem or not, they go through depressions. And unlike almost any other disease, we're, we're, we're not supposed to talk about our, our depressions or our mental illness. That's something that's hidden from family, from neighbors, from friends. And, and when you hide a problem, you can't possibly work on that problem. And somebody new came to our meeting last night, and we talk about it. it there's nothing better than seeing somebody new come to a meeting. Oh. And, the, and the guts that it takes to walk into a place where you're already petrified. A, am I going to know anybody? B, am I doing the right thing? What are these people going to think of me? Because I remember the first, I went to two AA meetings right when I started and I pulled in the parking lot and I stayed for about three minutes in the parking lot and I left. Because so I'm thinking, man, I am too ashamed of myself. I'm too scared. But the bottom line is to anybody out there who's hurting, you got to ask for help. You got to just go suck it up. And I don't mean that in a, you know, tough, you know, get over it type of way. It's just, you got to get into it, get into one of those rooms. And it's the most refreshing thing you have to be a part of because it's, you know, you see eight, nine, 25 people that will all come up and talk to you and just say, keep coming back. Yeah. And what you'll hear when you go to these rooms and I've, I've heard it over and over and over again. And I remember for months, I remember thinking all these people are, are just completely full of shit. They would talk about how happy they were. And, uh, and, and you hear it from new people now. I mean, like you said, we had a new guy last night and he mentioned that, um, you know, he just doesn't see any any joy in the future without alcohol. And and I was sure that all these people that were saying that they were happier now in recovery than they ever were, I, I knew they were lying. There was there was just no doubt. You know, they go to this group and, and they have to act like they're all happy. I was sure of that. And I'll be damned if at one point, six months or a year, whatever, into my meetings, I mean, like I said, it's I'm happier now than I've ever been in my life. And 
it's impossible telling where I would be if I were still drinking and, and suffering through my depressions on my own in my basement and not sharing that. And that's the power of opening up. You know, a lot of people that hear your podcast and the people you interview and, and some of the people even that, that listen to you, you know, to me share, and they're going to think, oh, my God, McCord, why did you say all that stuff? Why would you get on the air and, and admit that? I'm actually proud of it. I, I, I'm proud of it. It's not something I'm even, you know, I'm proud of it because I don't do that anymore. Right. And I was over, and I'm not proud of what I did. I'm not proud of hundreds of blackouts in the past before I quit drinking. I'm not proud of driving that many times where I could have killed a family, but I'm damn proud of recovering it and sharing it. And there's nothing better than sharing recovery. And it's almost a duty. Yeah. Because we could have, I could have, either one of us could have mowed somebody down. We could have killed ourselves and caused so much hurt, more hurt than we already did. Because we leave a blaze of shit behind us when we go through this. But I feel it's a duty to share and give back and try and help somebody. Because I don't want anybody to ever feel what I have felt. And I'll spend the rest of my life doing it. And I know just, you know, from us meeting the last year and a half, not only is it a duty, but it's an honor and a privilege to be able to share that with first timers. And I absolutely love my friends from grade school and high school, best buddies, absolutely best buddies. But the people that I meet with in recovery, that bond is even stronger than most family bonds or lifelong friendships because we're sharing something that most people don't share. And we've come out of a dark spot and we're not only happy, but proud to admit that we've come out of it and share it. So when you see the light come on for a newcomer, there's, there's honestly, there's no more exhilarating feeling in the world than to see that, to see that happen, to see somebody get it. So you're a lifelong friend and I consider you a best friend of mine. And I'm so glad that I met you and everything that you've done for me and sticking with me through that two person meeting for a long time. But, uh, I enjoyed it, every I, one of those. I know. I, I absolutely know. treasured those two people. And I'm not kidding you in a way I miss it. Yeah. It was just the two of us and we really got the bond. Uh, yeah. I appreciate you being here and we'll have to bring you back because, uh, we could go on forever. So I appreciate your friendship and, uh, keep spreading the word. Thanks for having me. And, and I'm, I'm honored to have you as a friend doing what you're doing. You know, this isn't, a, is not an easy venture that you're taking on, but you're going to help not hundreds, but thousands of people with these podcasts. And I'm honored to be part of it. Thanks for listening. I want to thank everyone that makes this show possible. Production by Gwen Sound, artwork by Neltner Smallbatch, and photography by John Willis and Lindsay Steinhauser. Please subscribe rate and write a review visit our website for more information at stigmatizedpodcast.com